The UW men's soccer team has seen a lot of success in the past few years, including one second place finish and three straight Elite Eight appearances in the NCAA D1 men's soccer tournament. Why am I talking about this? Well, we had the pleasure of having UW's head coach, Jamie Clark, on the podcast with us a few months back. Coach Clark invited us to come speak to the team about the home buying process because he knows it's a valuable way to serve his guys and prepare them for success out of college, and he also knows it's something that takes lots of planning. So this episode is a recording of the presentation my dad gave to the team there, demonstrating the value of owning real estate, the opportunity they have to purchase a home soon after college, and a few practical tips on how to start preparing. If you haven't bought your first home, this will be an extremely valuable presentation to listen to. You should be warned that my dad was dealing with some serious allergies at the time of the presentation and had an extremely scratchy voice, but the guys could hear him and were still really engaged, so I hope that won't bother you too much. Welcome to Work Is Good, a CSM podcast. My name is Landon Buto, and I host the show with my dad, Chris Buto, the owner and president at CSM. Please enjoy this week's conversation, and remember that if you're interested in getting a mortgage, or if you know someone who might be, check us out at clevelandstreet.com. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mean that every one of you is going to jump out of college and buy a house right away, um, but every one of you can be prepared to do that and have the option of doing that, or at least have taken care of some things that a lot of people just don't think about. So that's, that's our purpose today. Feel free to ask any questions. Um, you know, you can ask them as we go. Feel free to interrupt. It's not, you know, it, it's not going to disrupt anything that, that we're trying to do. Can you guys hear me okay back there? Do I have to kind of project? Okay. Okay. So, I mean, one of the first, first things we like to point out is it's just the um, net worth by housing status. And there's, there's an enormous statistical and constant difference between homeowners and non-homeowners in terms of ownership. And, you know, this is, this right here, this is renters. You know, since 1989, this is net worth by renters, and then this is homeowners. You know, and there's a vast difference. And, you know, Landon brought up, well, you know, there's a little bit of cause and effect going on here. You know, people who have more money can buy houses. And I really don't think the vast majority of this is related to that. I mean, I bought my house in 2001, and it was $315,000. And it's worth over a million dollars right now. And I'm a normal guy. You know, I'm, I'm not a millionaire kind of a guy. But that has happened over time to just a you know, middle-income guy because I was a homeowner. If I hadn't been a homeowner. So I'm part of this. You know, if I'm part of that up there because I owned a home. And that wasn't our first home. But, but the, you know, that's kind of the point. And then this is, you know, this is what happens typically, you know, if you rent your whole life. I'm working with a client right now. He's he's maybe in his 50s, and you know, he's paying very you know, high amount of rent. And he's could have bought a house a long time ago. He's kind of kicking himself a little bit because he didn't do that. So that's just to kind of illustrate statistically that it that it really is a it's a, it's a powerful wealth creator, a you know, powerful wealth driver. Um, and here are the reasons, you know, some of the reasons for that. Um, buying a home is, is what they call a levered investment. Most of us um, individuals don't make levered investments, meaning you're leveraging debt in order to invest. Most of us don't make levered investments. So if you had $50,000 and you invested it in stock, 
and then you got a two and a half percent return on that stock, you make two and a half percent on fifty thousand dollars. But if you instead take that and invest in a house of five hundred thousand, so you put ten percent down, then you get a two and a half percent return on that house. Well, you know now you've made twenty five percent return on that year just by getting a two and a half percent return on that house. And the average over the last thirty five years for houses is five percent. The average gain over the last 35 years is 5%. And so even at 2.5%, you can see the returns are substantial. Um, it's also a tax-deductible bracket. We're the, we're the, only, we're, the United States is one of the only major developed nations that actually gives you a tax break for buying a house. And you can typically deduct your mortgage interest on that. So there's, you know, 22% tax bracket is starts at $45,000 of taxable income. So you know, the, the illustration I grabbed this from actually said, let's say you're in a 30% tax bracket, but that means you're making a lot more money. I wanted to be a little more conservative, but even there, you know, you're gonna, you know, that, that adds, and this is cumulative, right? This is not 25% or 12%, this is 25% plus the tax bracket, 11.9%. And then it's tax-free income as well. Typically, if you sell a house, if you're married and you sell a house, you can exclude up to 500,000 of your gain from any taxation whatsoever. And then anything over that is capital gain income, which is taxed at a lower rate, um, or 250,000 if you're a single individual. But still, that's a substantial tax-free amount of income. And so for all of those reasons, real estate can be a super, uh, super invested investment to make. And like Jamie said, you know, if you can get in young, Landon's a good example of that. Landon graduated from college in May of 2022. It's just coming up on his one-year anniversary from that. And he bought a house, came to work for me, and he bought a house in August, right? Is that right, of, of 2022? And, you know, you can ask him about his experience, but I think it's just, he's, he's loved it. You know, he, he, he's loved, you know, there, there's, there's the financial aspects, but then there's the intangibles as well. So, um, and then, you know, a little more obscure, getting down in the weeds, even on rental properties, you can exchange those for other rental properties and still avoid paying tax on that. So there's, there's a considerable amount of tax benefit uh, for doing that. One of the things I want to illustrate a lot of, I don't know, when, you know, when you guys were coming up, I don't have a good perspective of that. Um, a lot of kids, you know, they, they saw their parents go through the, the crash, you know, 2007, 2009. I don't know if that affected you guys or not, um, or if you were so conscious of that when that was happening. That affected a lot of people, you know, and it, and it scarred a lot of people because it was, you know, it was a pretty difficult time for a lot of people. A lot of people lost their houses, and uh, it was a pretty scary time. And I think as a result of that, kind of the millennial generation, maybe a little, you know, below you guys, I think it delayed ownership for a lot of those people because they saw that, they saw, people who got into houses and all of a sudden the values went down and then they were foreclosed upon, um, lost their job, you know, all, all of that happened. And that, that, I think that delayed a lot of ownership for a lot of those people. But what I want to point out here is that this is 47 years of housing data. That's two and a half times your lifetimes for most of you guys in here. And in that entire 47 years of housing data, if you take a, a five-year horizon, and then typically I don't recommend buying a house and this is not an absolute, nobody can really know until you look back in hindsight and decide if it was a good idea or not. But I generally don't recommend buying a house unless you can reasonably think of holding that house for five years. Doesn't mean you have to live there. You may be someone who's going, look, I'm going to, I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to live in it, 
I'm gonna keep it as a rental, I'm gonna go buy the next one. You know, I know many people have done that and done really well doing that. So, but I generally don't recommend buying unless you're gonna have at least a five-year horizon. And one of the reasons for that is that the selling costs are fairly significant for a house. You know, when you sell a house, when you sell uh, your stock and you invested 50,000 and the selling costs are pretty nominal, when you sell that 500,000 house, you may pay fifty thousand dollars in selling costs. You know, it's, it could be up. You know, it's not quite ten percent, but it could be close to that. But what I, what I do want to illustrate here is over this whole forty-seven years of King County housing data, only during this two-year period, if you have a five-year holding period, would you have lost money if you sold it five years later. You know, so it's so it really is a it's a historically it's a safe investment. It's historically not an investment where you're gonna, you know, where you see that, oh, people get into this and some people hit, you know, some people miss, some people suffer horribly. Generally speaking, over this entire graph, you know, this is the only period right there where you could have bought a house is right there. And then five years later, have not broken, broken even. So it's historically a pretty, pretty safe investment to have. And, um, you know, and the other thing too is, you know, I owned, I told you I bought my house around 2001. You know, I owned my house during this time and I was probably upside down like a lot of people at some point during that time. But I didn't lose my job. I was able to keep making my mortgage payments. I kept my house and then kind of got back on the upside of that, of that growth scale when we got, you know, through the trough there. And so even if things do go bad, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose. It just means that, you know, it may change your, your investment horizon a little bit, it may stretch you out a little bit. But not everybody who owned a house at this point in time or bought a house at that point in time really um, suffered that much in the long run. You know, some of us were able to stick it out. So um, this is this is kind of what I think is the most relevant information for you guys, because some of these things you guys can do today. Um, and, and some of these things you should be doing today. It, it really is something that it's pretty simple to do and can provide enormous benefits down the road. I get people who come to me who, because they don't have an established credit history, they've got great jobs, great income, they've got money down, but they come to me and they haven't had an established credit history. Now sometimes it's because someone moved over here from England or Pakistan or India, you know, all, all over the world people come here, tech jobs especially, we see a lot of people who come from various countries and they don't have a credit history yet. And that person, no matter what their income, it's harder to finance. And so, um, so one of the most important things you can do, and something you possibly can do now, is just start to get your credit established. Because credit scores are based upon credit history and you have to have a history of being granted credit and then using it responsibly over time to build a good credit score. So, you know, I say here at least two credit cards and, you know, you, you have to filter that through your own personality as well. I don't recommend you do that. If you, you have to have the self-control to own a credit card. You know, there are certain people who get credit card debt and then they get into trouble with credit card debt. And I don't recommend that. I recommend you use them um, and pay them off monthly. But I do recommend that you get one now so you can start to establish a history. And then, you know, you want to increase your limits over time. A lot of times people, when they, they first get a credit card, in order to get one, they'll give you like a $500 limit. So it's just a, you know, barely covers your gas for a month, you know. And, and, and you want to increase those limits over time 
And generally, after you've had a score a card for a time, they will send you unsolicited offers to increase your limits. And that's and again, you have to filter this through your own personality. You, know, you want to you know, expose yourself to to things that you know that, that may be a temptation for you. But if you know, if you got self control and you're good with your money, then I would say increase that limit as much as they let you limit that because that's a that has a big impact on scores. One of the one of the biggest impact on credit scores is how much of available debt are you using every month. So if you have a credit card and just one card and the max is $500, which is a lot of times what they'll start out giving you is a $500 card, and you you know you spend $300 in a month, now you're using 60% of available credit, and that's a negative. That'll drag your score down, especially because you're young, your credit's thin, they don't have much else to go on, and all they, they're really, this computer is just filtering in. This is someone who's using 60% of all available credit. They don't really factor in all of the context of that, saying, well, it's his first credit card, it's only 500 bucks. And it doesn't take much to get to 60%. So you do want to try and increase limits. Uh, pay everything on time. I, you know, like I said, don't recommend a balance. Yes, sir. Different credit cards have different like, benefits and stuff like that. Yeah. So if I were to want to like upgrade to a like, nicer card, would you recommend canceling the older ones or keeping all of them? Initially, I would say keeping them because, because initially you don't want to just have one card. Um, having, you know, building a credit profile instead of a single credit trade, you know, what we call trade lines, that would be one trade line. So having more than one is probably helpful. Now, when you get out there and they start to proliferate, and, you know, then there, there's a point at which that goes away. Um, but, but yeah, I would say, now I'm, you know, just for very practical reasons, I have one credit card. I have a Costco credit card, and it, and, and, you know, kind of drives my wife crazy. She wants us to get more than one because, not because she wants to spend the whole month, you know, but but she just feels like we're at risk if that one gets compromised in some way. We don't have anything else to lean back on. But I just I just don't want to keep up with more than one. I just want to have one card that I carry around. Um, but I've been around for a long time, so my credit score has plenty of depth. I don't need to have more than one open now. I have a mortgage. I have other things going on. So, um, but yeah, I would say initially keep. Yeah, get you know, multiple cards is better for someone you know in your age bracket. You, it's probably not a bad idea. Keep that going. And uh, you know, then you can be an authorized user on your parents' card. That's a that's a trick we use a lot you know, in in this industry. If you have somebody that comes out, they're you know they're young, they don't have. I can't remember, Landon. Do we need to use that for you? We didn't do that for you guys. You had already kind of got that going. Yeah, but um, a lot of times if uh, you become an authorized user on somebody else's card and they have a long history, that automatically attaches to you. You get that credit history attributed to you and that goes into the algorithm and tells you what your score is. And so uh, so that's you know, that's another thing that you can do. And you know, that's something that you know, that's something that I I would say you could do that. Uh, you know, if you're a freshman you're not gonna be thinking about a house for a while that you know, it's not something you have to do now, but if you're a senior and you're thinking, you know, I kind of want to buy a house you know, right, you know, pretty soon after I get out of college and I'm going to have a salary job, then you know, maybe you want to do that six months ahead of time so it has some time to season on there so you're not kind of last minute on that. But that is something that can impact you pretty quickly. You know, if you just become an authorized user on your parents' credit card, and many parents are willing to do that, but not all. Um, and then savings, you know, just get in the habit of starting to put stuff away. You know, I think Jamie said you guys 
had somebody in here once upon a time talk about investing and finance, and I'm sure they talked about you know starting to build that habit, that muscle now. Um, but you know, when you when you buy houses, as little as three percent down can drastically improve your financing options. You know there are zero percent down programs; they exist, um, but they're more expensive. They're harder to come by. They're less attractive to potential sellers if you're in a competitive bid situation. And so just having 3% down can really significantly improve, improve your cost of financing and your potential for being the winning bidder on a house. And so just you know, just be aware of that. Start, start saving if you can. Set a goal to come out of college with some if you can. And, um, and then, you know, employment, this one is not, you know, this can kind of be the, you know, the tail wagging the dog sometimes if you don't necessarily want to pick a job because of how it's going to affect your ability to get a house. Um, but you at least be aware of that. You know, when you, when you go, when you're evaluating options, when you're thinking of getting out of college, or at least when you're setting your expectations of whether you're going to be able to buy a house. You know, the reason Landon was able to get a job right out of, or a house right out of college was because he had a salary job and he'd been in college before. So college kind of counts as part of your work history. You know, lenders will look at that as a part of work history. And so if you come right out of college and you get a salary job, you're pretty much going to be able to use that salary right away to qualify. Totally different if you go into a variable income situation. And it's, you know, for, for I think what's pretty obvious reasons is underwriters need to figure out what they call stabilized income. And they need to be able to look at you and project into the future and say, I, I need to see, to evaluate your capacity to take on this loan, I need to see what your income is going to be into the future. And if you have a salary, that's not hard to do. You, know, you can never do it perfectly. You could lose your job, anything could happen. But if you have a salary, it's pretty easy to do. You go, okay, it's you know, $60,000 a year, it's $5,000 a month. I can use that number. But if you were commissioned, you know, or if you're in an hourly position where, you know, let's say you go into, you know, some kind of position where they pay you hourly and one week you work 30 hours, next week you work 60 hours, that's going to be a lot more difficult to determine what's a stabilized income for the future until you've had a history. And so generally if you go into that kind of position, you know, commission, any of those kind of positions, then you're generally going to have to wait a longer period of time before they'll give you before they'll give you a, a, a loan. Typically, they're going to require at least 12 months of history, and, and really, you should count on two years, almost. Now, there are ways, you know, there, there are ways around that, but um, there, you know, when I say that, that you, know, you should always think more expensive. You know, that there, there, there are things that people get creative and they will do things for you, but, but it's generally way more expensive than if you can come to them with stabilized income. And then, you know, rent to, friend, rent to friends, right? I mean, that's, you know, you're at the prime age when you're coming out of college where that's what people do. You know, they don't necessarily live on their own. You know, Landon was married his last year of college, so you know, he had a roommate ready to go. But uh, most of you guys will get out of college, you know, you know you'll, you'll get jobs and many of you will live with friends. You know, it's just, it's the natural thing to do. And you can be the one that owns the house. And there's, you know, Nothing wrong with that, right? Being the guy who owns the house, you take the risk, but you get the rewards as well, you know, and, and you, you get to share that cost with others who are going to live in the house with you. So, 
That's and yeah, you can't qualify with your friend's rental income, you know, unless you, you know, now, if you buy it, if you buy a duplex, if you buy something that you can legally live in one side and then have the other side as a separate dwelling, then you could actually use that rental income to qualify. But you can't just use rental income of, you know, look, I'm just going to live in one bedroom. I've got three. I've got two more. I'm going to rent out. It's $2,000 a month. They won't let that you know, because that's not a that's not a um, separately rentable dwelling. But you can do it in terms of your own affordability as long as you qualify. Um, I just want to talk about, you know, this really probably goes further back earlier in the, in the presentation, but this is just talking about um, what I think are opportunities in the housing market right now. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how the millennial generation were um, pretty slow to adopt home ownership, and I think a lot of them kind of went through the crash, saw their parents go through the crash, saw a lot of pain and suffering associated with housing, and uh, just kind of decided not to jump in, but they're gonna. And and this is you know this shows you um, home ownership by by groups. It's 135 and you know, stays here. Once you get up here, it jumps dramatically. You know, goes from 40 under under. Under 40 here to over 60 here. Once you get into that very next bracket, and we have a huge segment of the population ready to move into that bracket, and so I think homeownership, you know, and we we have that combined with chronic and national deficiency in housing supply right now. You know, there just aren't enough housing units out there right now to supply the demand, the expected demand, and so that's why you've seen even in this market that we've been in, where interest rates have gone up and and buyers have pulled back, but pricing hasn't necessarily pulled back that dramatically. It did a little bit, but but there's still multiple offers out there. You know, typically, and most of my clients that are out there buying are competing against other offers because there's a lot of demand and a chronic undersupply right now. And that's only gonna, I think that's only gonna get better or worse depending on how you're looking at that going into the near future because that demographic is you know we have a huge segment of the population that's moving into that higher higher realm here that's going to jump from here to here so you're going to see a lot of those people buy and i think you know, that bodes well for those who do own homes you know when that starts to happen i'm i'm big on the value of realtors yeah now as a buyer typically you're not paying that cost and what i've seen what i've had clients do is they just they walk into a listing they're on their own they don't have a realtor and they just start talking to the listing agent, and the listing agent says, oh, I'll, I can do both sides, right? Well, you can't negotiate with yourself and negotiate for highest or lowest dollar with yourself. You just can't. And, and they are contractually obligated to prioritize the seller over the buyer. Um, and so I never recommend and I don't even recommend a lot of times the way they'll get around. Some some realtors in principle won't do a dual agency. They won't do both sides. But a lot of times they'll just refer you to their friend in the office. And I'm not saying there's anything nefarious about that, but, but I do think it's still not your best situation because now that person who got the referred lead of you is going to be in a position of, of you know, gratitude to the realtor who gave them the deal. And they're not going to want to upset them by negotiating too hard against them. And so I, I almost always recommend as a buyer that you bring your own party to bear. And, and for a seller as well, you know, if there's a buyer, you're not paying it. 
the, you know, the full real estate commission is usually 6%. Now in this market, I think that number's coming down a little bit, you know, in terms of what most people pay. And then you have discount realtors who will charge less. Um, but that's paid by the seller. Now, seller side, I, I, I'm pretty, uh, I would be as tempted as the next guy to, to not, to use, you know, do it on my own. You know, especially you, know, you look back at when the market was so crazy, you just throw it out there and a hundred people come flocking and each offering more than the other. You think that you can maximize. Uh, but I really don't, I, I think I would hire a realtor to do it because they, you know, there, there are a number of things that go on there, but they, there's a lot of strategy that goes into how you price a house, no matter what the market is. You know, you could price a, you can price a house such that it just sits for a long time and then it, then it acquires a taint, you know, where people go, oh, that thing's been sitting there for a long time, they're vulnerable, I don't have to offer a full price, you know, you, and, and realtors also, they're, they're, and they're, they network with each other. So the, you are, you know, you're not a part of that network. So when you have a realtor, they have a network of other realtors that they work with, they're, and they're just, they, they know how to position your house, they know how to stage your house. All of those things are super important, I think, to getting top dollar as a seller. Um, so I, I generally am in favor of that. But none of this, none of these are absolutes, but I'm, I pretty strongly recommend that when I'm asked. I, I did have a good friend, they, they inherited the house, um, and um, they, you know, they rented it for a while. It's in Tam O'Shanter. They were going to sell it, and they wanted to do it on their own. And uh, ultimately, I think they came to their senses and decided to hire a realtor. And I, I, I encourage that because I just, I really believe, even if you pay, and, and it's not, you know, there's 10% selling cost, but the max 6% of that's your realtor cost. Still a lot. It's a lot. Um, but I think they more than earn their keep. It's not hard. If you're if you're selling a 1.4 million dollar house, you know it's not hard for your pricing strategy and your marketing strategy to influence that 100,000 or more. You know, so, so I would say definitely I, I would recommend it. Thank you guys. You guys are good. Thanks for listening to Work Is Good. If you enjoyed it, share it with someone else. Leave a review and listen next week.